Discover FX's Shogun, the official podcast available now. Every legend begins with a story. Listen and explore episode by episode the story of war, passion, and power set in feudal Japan. Join host Emily Yoshida each week with the creators, cast, and crew in this exclusive companion podcast. They dive deep into the twists and turns of the plot, go behind the scenes, and explore the real-life history that informed the limited series based on James Clavell's best-selling novel. Search FX's Shogun wherever you listen to podcasts. Tax season is approaching, bringing potential extra cash your way. Rather than spending it all on an expensive deal filled with yada yada from your current wireless plan, consider switching to Metro by T-Mobile for no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada you don't take yada yada in life don't take yada yada from your wireless provider metro by t-mobile has no contracts no credit checks no surprises and nada yada yada stop by one of over six thousand metro stores nationwide this episode of Stuff They Don't Want You To Know is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop powered by an Intel Core i9 processor. Featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Plus, build your dream setup with great deals on select game Gaming monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at Alienware.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge gaming technology to conquer the competition and free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Noel is not here right now. But we'll be returning soon. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Uh, getting on the other side of that bargain with the sea witch, Matt, and my voice is slowly returning like the tide. Uh, maybe Do you have to, though? Do you have to get on the other side? I kind of like this side. Oh, thanks, man. It's like mildly ominous, but just smoldering uh, in general. I, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Thanks so much, Matt. I think this does also answer the question that we get sometimes in reviews, which is, is Ben, or whatever they call him, is he purposely making his voice lower? No, this is like, <laughs> this is the sick voice. The other weirdly deep voice is also my regular voice. But um, But we could use... 
some ominous tones, I would I would posit for this in some of our upcoming episodes. Uh, Matt, this is one that you and I have gone back and forth on for for a while now because we both uh, attended various halls of higher learning. We have friends and acquaintances who are PhDs or postdocs or active professors. Um, all my friends who are tenured professors, to to be clear, are people who taught me in the past. You know, I yeah. <laughs> I haven't. None of my friends my age have actually made tenure yet, and it's a very rare thing for people of this generation. Oh, oh yeah. For, for certain. And even many, many individuals who have pursued a master's degree, you know, and sometimes even a bachelor's have attempted to publish in a journal and uh, often successfully uh, for I, I will just put this out there. For me, it's generally a frustration as we're researching these episodes of not having access to journals or an article that I want to read. Because I don't pay for access and I kind of don't want to pay for access. Uh, and just any encountering any paywall these days is a bit of a frustration for me. Because um, when I think about recurring payments, I just uh, it makes my heart hurt. But uh, yeah, but that's that's generally what I've been talking about when it comes to this subject. Why do I got to pay for all these articles? Right, exactly. And, you know, you might hear what Matt just said and think, well, you have to pay people for their work. Exactly. We, in a very real way, already have. And if you were listening in the United States, odds are you have too. Today, we are talking about something called academic journals. If you have attended college or if you never went to college and you pursued various trades instead, you're probably still aware of these things, academic journals, scholarly journals, trade publications. For some of us, the phrase conjures up memories of a professor hitting home the importance of reading legitimate scholarship on a paper. Um, I also remember many of many of my professors, the really good ones, were actually somewhat roguish, and they would say, "All right, the you know the suits at the university aren't going to give us subscription access to this, so I printed it out. Don't tell anyone." And that's why I'm not going to reveal their names. But I had plenty of I had plenty of classes where um, instead of a textbook, this you know professor they would have uh, they would have a binder which was just the photocopies of the journals, and then we had to go and and photocopy. I hope I hope I'm not blowing anybody's spot up, but I always appreciated that. But for other people, you know, you might hear the phrase academic journal and think of what a pain in the butt it was for you to have to spend so much time working on your own research and then hoping against hope that you could get it published because you had to. Uh, but then for a lot of people, I think for many of us, you might start dozing off as soon as you hear the term and you're haunted by these visions of these endless bibliographies and and uh, authority figures telling you over and over that you have to learn this specific format for citation, MLA in one class, APA in another, right? Yeah, uh, but for me, it's thinking about vocabulary that is fully outside of my understanding, uh, especially as a layperson coming to these journals. I, If I try and dive deeply enough, I just get super confused, super fast. My brain doesn't even really 
take in the ideas because every seven words, there's a brand new word I have to look up that I don't know what it is. So then I lose the train of thought and then I'm just like, all right, well, I, I'm going to read something else. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny you say that because uh, I had a moment a long time ago reading scholarly journals, uh, scholarly articles about James Joyce. And it was in mm. a, it was a class where we only studied Ulyss Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake. And James Joyce is famously, um, he's like a heavy metal guitar virtuoso. He's the kind of, he does the writer version of a 30 minute solo and a song that could have been six minutes where you're like, yeah, yeah. this is really good. But what is it? Why are you just, do you just <laughs> want us to know that you can do this? Yes. Nice, I guess. But um, but so that was compounded by reading a guy who always throws in, you know, the most obscure things possible written about in the very rarefied language of academia. So I feel your pain, Matt. Um, for many people, you know, reading it doesn't flow. And you don't necessarily read this stuff for enjoyment. You read it for education and um, ideally to inform your own research. So whatever your experience, whether you know about these things or you've never encountered one, make no mistake, this is a huge, huge business. And that means, of course, there is a dark side to the story. So first, here are the facts. Riddle me this, Matt. Mm -hmm. What is an academic journal? Is it a magazine? Oh. Can we ask that? Play <laughs> well, no, no dumb questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I think about every academic journal as a, its own version of The Onion, for sure. Uh, it, it is. <laughs> I mean, you can at least think about it like a magazine, right? Whenever something is in an academic journal and you find one, it has uh, a specific theme. Let's say an overarching, there's an overarching theme to every article that's published in a specific journal. And that's because journals are specialized very much on purpose. And there are a ton of them. Uh, so you think like for me, it was video game magazines growing up as a kid, I always mm -hmm. read the latest Nintendo power and I was always about it. And, uh, it was, there was no, there were no, <laughs> there were no articles in there that didn't have some kind of tangential connection to video games. You think about the same thing with, um, I, I mean, I'm an, I would just throw things out here, but specific, uh, chemistry journals. I mean, there's, you know, there's a journal for chemistry. There, there are several, but then there's, you know, you break that chemistry down and here's the journal on phosphates. I don't know if that's true or not, <laughs> but essentially, <laughs> essentially that, um, that's the way I think about academic journals, like a very specialized magazine specifically for academic research. Yeah. Well put, you know, they, like any other magazine, they publish at regular intervals, often, you know, maybe an annual edition or maybe quarterly, meaning four times a year. Uh, they're relevant to a specific audience, and the audience often pays a subscription fee, like a lot of people did for Nintendo Power back in the day. Um, but you can also buy specific issues. Or now, in the world of online reading, you can buy access to specific articles or stories a la carte. So I don't want all four issues of epistemological aerodynamics or whatever. Uh, I just want the one story. However, one important difference that I think we're both getting toward here is that these journals 
have higher standards in theory than a lot of commonplace periodicals. They're not meant to be for everyone. It's, it'd be weird if they were. They focus on the scholarship relating to particular academic disciplines. And like you said, Matt, they can be cartoonishly specific. We looked up a, uh, a bunch of academic journal titles because they get really fun. Uh, we're talking about things like the International Journal of Dairy Technology, the IEEE Transactions on Advanced Packaging, or of course, the International Journal of Control, which I have to say was probably a, a bit of a disappointment for both of us. Yeah, I, I really thought it was going to be just about that one video game, which is one of my mm. favorites, uh, but it's not. Me too. <laughs> Thanks for turning me on to that. Alan Wake 2 is coming out, by the way, so there's that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. But but yes, Ben, <laughs> the International Journal of Control focuses on things like delay systems, adaptive controls, aircraft and aerospace controls, social systems, robotics and UAV. Wait, social systems. Mm -hmm. controlling social systems. Oh God, what? Oh what yeah. Have we stumbled upon. We've, uh, we've, we've stumbled upon some worthwhile reading, I think. Oh yeah, I think so. Oh, oh, you know, we almost forgot here, Ben. Mm. The journal known only as pain. <laughs> ah, yes. Pain. Who is, we were talking about this off air. Who started uh, a journal and said, they are going to call it simply pain. <laughs> all pain, all-encompassing pain, always and forever. I know, and this is a real thing, and the name is just pain. Pain. Uh, so un there's another thing, right? So these are very specific. They're for a specific audience, and unlike a lot of pop culture magazines, everything from your U.S. Weekly to, you know, The Economist or to Harper's or The Atlantic, Vanity Fair, Guns and Ammo, whatever. Unlike those magazines, these publications are peer reviewed. And that means that, again, in theory, every article you read there has been evaluated by other experts in a given field. Pain, by the way, we're joking a little, is, is a specific issue of a larger journal. Yeah. But I, I like the idea of the <laughs> journal just being named Pain, and every article has to be reviewed by an expert on friggin' Pain, you know? Oh, experts. <laughs> There are multiple mm -hmm. dungeons across the planet, and they're just reviewing mm -hmm. articles in there. <laughs> the physical quality is severely adequate. However, there needs to be more expression of the emotional pain, the existential Sound. pain. <laughs> the sound of a cat of nine tails. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, <God>. there are <laughs> very well. Uh, but yeah, there are these experts. And they're often volunteers, which is going to be important to this story. So if you had a journal on astrophysics, for example, this wouldn't just willy-nilly publish some random dude's opinions on magnets and space travel that he came up with while uh, while housing some ayahuasca on a spirit journey. <laughs> Unless there were other established scientists who looked at the methodology and said, okay, this is legit. Before we dive into the conspiracies here, and there are some very dangerous ones, it is crucial for us to note these journals overall are a good thing. A capital G, capital T, good thing. Yeah, because of what you just described, Ben. 
we want experts to look at other experts work and say, yes, this checks out. We don't want to just have a bunch of, like you said, um, individuals putting out information that may not be verifiable or correct. We don't want that. That that's chaos. Uh, especially if there are specific fields of science and research that we want to continue forward built upon the work of previous people, right? That's kind of what science is. We, we come to a consensus understanding at any given point, and then we build upon that consensus. And we have to decide whether or not uh, that next building block is real enough to support the weight of the next one, right? I mean, it makes total sense. This is a great thing. On paper. Mm -hmm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> On paper for now. Uh, also, <laughs> let me air a quick correction because I was uh, diving through notes about pain here. Uh, it is the journal of pain. That's what I should have said. It's its own thing. It's all aspects of pain. I'm going to let it go. But it is <laughs> legit. In 2021, the journal of pain, simply known by a street name pain, ranked fifth in the anesthesiology category of journals. So, oh, so for a minute, I really just, I thought it was the, uh, the official up and vanished journal academic. Uh, journal, right? I was thinking <laughs> of that joke too. Yeah. Shout out. Saw pain earlier. He's doing well. Yeah. I don't know about that journal. I'll have to ask him these things also, like you said, they, they create these building blocks. They create conversation and discourse and there's no question about it. Successfully appearing in a prestigious journal, whether whether you're an author of a paper or just an author cited by a paper that gets published, both of those are very, very good for a scholar's career. In fact, they are necessary. And at this point, when we'll tell you what we mean by that in a second, but at this point, it's important to note, not all journals are created equally, just like universities some are considered more prestigious than others. Now, is this kind of hierarchy fair? I would argue it has a lot of problems because I disrespect hierarchies in general. Um, I think they're bad for people and society, but it's a real thing. Some things are considered superior to others. Like you would have a hard time convincing someone that DeVry a degree from DeVries is as prestigious as a degree from an Ivy League school like Yale or Harvard. So this is a thing you need to know when you're thinking about academic journals and the conspiracies we're about to get into. And this is such a thing that it is not a rule of thumb, not in this world. It is not a, uh, a general vibe people get uh, being rigorous academics, the um, the industry and the people associated with it have codified this hierarchy into something they call the impact factor. Yeah, it sounds it sounds a lot like marketing mumbo jumbo to me. Sometimes there's just mm -hmm. like specific names that are come up with by <laughs> by marketing mm -hmm. professionals. Have people who are in public relations who understand these things and they attach metrics to them. But An impact activation? factor, yeah, yeah. activation. That activation was so dope, bro. I'm so activated right now. <laughs> Fully activated. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, the impact factor is really interesting, though, to, to me. It's the concept that whenever you have 
let's say an individual article, how many times is that article cited somewhere else, either in a publication or by another article that's maybe in another journal or in the same journal? And then how many times is that journal, all of the articles that they publish, how many times is that journal cited overall? So you have these like varying levels of impact on the the scientific community or your specific community of people who are reading your journal or journals like yours. It's really interesting. It is. It is. And it is continually evaluated. And when we say codified, kid you not, there is even a publication that tracks these factors. It's called Journal Citation Reports. It's a little bit meta. It's a real thing, though. So it's a it's a journal about reports in journals. Oh, riveting stuff, really. Um, but, you know, it is important. It's important for many people in the industry. I would say it's way more important for the industry itself, the academic big academic journal. Yeah, exactly. And this brings us well, like, why is this important, though? Impact factors the big H number, all the stuff we'll talk about. It's important because of a phrase you may have heard before called publish or perish. Matt, had you heard of this phrase before? I'm sure you had. Oh, yeah. If you are receiving money, let's say a grant of some sort from someplace, probably a government, that's money that you're receiving to perform research, to do whatever it is you're doing, your experiments. Um, if you don't then publish that work somewhere so somebody can read about it uh there's gonna be somebody come knocking and saying so what what did you what you do with all that money that we gave you <laughs> so what is it we pay you for again yeah <laughs> yeah and that's that's something people don't want to hear um it's tremendous it refers to that tremendous pressure you're describing matt to publish work as often as possible preferably in the most impactful journals possible. And this can make or break your reputation and the prospects for your future career. Uh, academia can be quite competitive. That's something that might surprise people on the outside. But sometimes you'll see scholars get a little bit Highlander about this stuff because when it comes to tenure track positions, um, there can be only one pretty often, right? And it's it's brutal, and it might be bad for research, you know? This is a, in a shower epiphany I had this morning, but mm. I was thinking back to discussions of the NBA. I was watching that HBO series on Magic Johnson and just thinking about tenured positions at prestigious universities and colleges, right? And I imagined it like NBA players where – uh, there's a ton of people out there who would make great tenured professors, but there are only so many slots open. So you 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 know just trying to be in that field and like compete at that level in the same as the NBA, you just you either have to stand out or you have to be so good at what you do that you get noticed. Basically, right, in my mind. right, and I, I like that. Just a soft note here. I like that you and I both go back and forth between prestigious and prestigious because I, I do this too. I still don't, I, I, I still, um, I don't know. I just go with the vibe of them. God, I love this language, this ridiculous English language. I've watched too much British television sometimes. And then I get, I confuse myself. Like, how do I, how should I pronounce that word? 
prestigious, uh, prestigious, ah, whatever. We'll just go with it. Yeah, we get some, we, we get correspondence sometimes where people, people ask me about say rather versus rather or uh, either versus either. And you know what, folks, we just go back and forth because, uh, <laughs> because look, the, the English language is such a weird agglomeration of piracy and freestyling. I, I think, um, you know, like, why is K a letter? To be honest, why? <laughs> why do we need that one? Anyway, uh, so so tenure professor, why is this a big deal? Well, if you are given tenure at an institution, um, it does kind of make you a rock star. Like you said, Matt, there are only so many slots. It depends on the institution and the department. But it makes it very, very difficult for you to be fired. It is a form of uh, job security. Uh, it, it is still possible to be fired, but the circumstances have to be pretty extraordinary. And if you want a tenure track position, then you want to be seen as a rock star. You want to be cited pretty often. You want to be published pretty often. And so as counterintuitive as it may sound to an outsider definition of what makes a good professor, the idea that you'll hear a lot of people say is, if you spend all your time teaching undergraduates or teaching folks instead of researching and publishing, then you are hurting your career prospects, which is kind of weird, right, uh, from an outside perspective. But we'll, we'll show you how the business works. As you can already tell, these journals are vital to the furthering of scientific knowledge they're vital to the furthering of individual careers and institutional reputations. And as a result of these factors, they are a big, big business. According to critics, they're also a hotbed of corruption, nepotism, and oh yeah, conspiracy. We'll tell you what we're talking about after a word from our sponsors. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. 
At UC San Diego, we understand that in order to turn the vast unknown into new cures or human connections or expansive culture, you have to be willing to venture further out. That's why we'll go as far as the International Space Station cancer cells in hand and novel medicines in mind. That's why we map the seemingly randomness of forest fires and connect them with revolutionary AI to see where they'll appear next. And it's why we arrive on the San Diego shore from all over the world to bring different perspectives to our world's biggest challenges. When you push the boundaries of science, art, and culture, whole worlds open up. And at UC San Diego, that's where the real adventure starts. Learn more at ucsd.edu. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Here's where it gets crazy. First... There's not just one scam. There's not one. We're doing a, we're doing a, but wait, there's more infomercial <laughs> about how crooked this stuff is. Uh, okay. The, the first, first, let's talk about the really easy one. We said not all of these journals are created equal. Let's talk about the bottom of the barrel, the predatory publishers, the fake ones, Matt. I don't know. I was thinking about the best way to get into this and I wanted to ask you if you ever had anybody in your family or a a friend of a friend or a family friend who, as they got older, decided to publish their memoirs. Have you ever run into anything like that? Oh, that's weird. I honestly haven't. I haven't run into anybody who's decided to publish a memoir. Wow. Right on. Well, thinking about the company I keep now. I, I need more memoirs <laughs> in my social circle. <laughs> hey, man, you've got some war stories. I bet you could write some memoirs. Woo! <laughs> okay, Let's do it. Sounds, <laughs> oh, okay, I was like, I was about to say that is the most enthusiastic. No, <laughs> shut up, Ben. That I've heard <laughs> in a while. But, uh, but yeah. So I'm the reason I'm bringing this up is this is just a, an analogy. Um, I have interacted with, uh, you know, I, I know all types of humans, so. Um, there's a thing that happens not infrequently as people get older where they say, I want to tell my story, right? And uh, a lot of times people, especially, you know, not to be ageist, but older people will look for a way to publish their story. And they'll do that without knowing very much about the Leviathan uh, that is the publishing industry. And they'll go to something like a vanity publisher, and a vanity publisher, um, I think Vantage Press used to be one, will say, oh, we love your memoir. Oh, it's so well-written and so insightful. And for the low, low price of, insert egregious amount here, we would love to bring your story to the world. So you're paying them to you know, run a printing press for you. 
this is where we, this, ha, you know, and this is a scam. Everybody admits it's a scam when it happens to people who are maybe a little less technologically or less publishing industrially savvy. Uh, when you look at the world of academia, though, which, like any other field, is populated with brilliant people, you see that there are predatory publishers there. And uh, sometimes the scholars that interact with these predatory publishers know that the publication is not on the up and up. They just also like they think of that that figure of speech, that directive, publish or perish. The thing about publish or perish is that it doesn't say it's it's just publish. It's not publish in a good journal or perish. It's just publish. Yep. So if you can't get in, like let's say you submit it to five or six different journals and gets declined. You finally say, okay, well, here we go. Going to roll the dice on this one. See what happens. Uh, and it's actually, it occurs quite often. And there are so many of these types of, of this kind of journal out there. Yeah, yeah. There are thousands and thousands of academic journals across the world. And not all of them are on the up and up. If you want to get some kind of publication, you just need some over the finish line, then your standards start to get a little lower and lower. You start to maybe compromise. That's understandable. And I want to give a special shout out to a guy named Dr. Andrew Stapleton over on YouTube. Uh, he has a great video on this. He has a great series of videos. He's a charming presenter. He's a very, very smart cat. And he talks about uh, he, he is a dude, uh, a brilliant scientist who left academia to do other things. And his channel, I think, is Andy Stapleton. It's all about the hidden aspects of PhDs, postdoc work, and uh, the academy, capital A in general. And he points out some dangers with these predatory journals. Uh, he says, look, they... They'll publish your stuff, but they don't spend time peer-reviewing research. You just pay to play, and you can hopefully squeeze that somewhere in your CV, the academic version of a resume, right, your works, uh, and you can maybe put it somewhere in the list where people glaze over it. So that's one bad actor in publishing, but there's another bad actor, fake publishers, and this is where we want to give a shout-out to an excellent TEDx talk by a scholar named Bradley Alfie. You saw this one too, I think, Matt. I did. I just have I have one critique of the video, and it's uh -huh. just to speed up, uh, speed up your script. Because I'm assuming you got a teleprompter or something as you're giving this uh, presentation, Bradley. And I just somebody just needed to increase that speed just enough. Because uh, I, I I found myself doing the fifteen plus fifteen second thing on the video mm. just to get to the next point because I kind of saw where you were going I'm just talking to you Bradley I saw exactly where you were going and I was just kind of waiting for you to jump to the next thing but uh, other than that the uh, content held within was excellent you know Matt I noticed some of that too and I was my take on that or my interpretation was that when you are lecturing in that format you learn specific cadences, right? So maybe it was the teleprompter. Maybe it's like a natural pause because the expectation is that the crowd will be taking notes. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe it's a lecture hall thing. But, but I agree with your point overall. And 
content wise, he does something pretty humorous. He gets trolled by a fake slash predatory publication out of China, and he decides to see whether they are legit. So he responds by writing what he calls the worst possible paper he could write. And this paper, which is full to the brim of scientific jargon and totally made up graphs that, as he said, look like science, but are not science. He pretends to argue that people should be teaching school children to make and sell drugs, methamphetamine, uh, based on the television show Breaking Bad. And he goes through, it's a long video, he goes through specific examples of things he says in the paper that make no sense and are onion-level hilarious. And later, the publisher greenlights his submission, which is um, worth a chuckle if you want to watch it. Uh, he does well, go it on. Should, it, should be, yeah. it should be noted the his citations were fake, or at least many of his citations were not real. Yeah, like he, he said something like follow them. 40 to 44 yeah. citations, all <laughs> malarkey. And uh, and then this takes him, there's a turn in this where he describes the danger of these kinds of publications because he says, look, publications like this are platforming utter bullshit about things like 5G and COVID. And when they get published in something that sounds like it has legitimacy, then audiences who are practicing confirmation bias aren't going to read into it more carefully. They're, they're going to hear that innocuous official sounding name and then say, oh, here's the truth. And, you know, some big force is shutting it down. Uh, that's why I'm able to find it and share it at a viral level on Facebook because they don't want you to know. Right. Well, yeah. And in worst case scenario is that that specific article goes offline for one reason or another for some kind of strike or some other reason. And now that it's gone, oh, the narrative can become someone has removed it purposefully because they don't want you to know the truth. When in reality, it's just a pile of BS. And now there's a large swath of people who like fully believe it and now even believe in a conspiracy surrounding it. Right, right. And this is obviously not to say conspiracies aren't true. Uh, Many, many are far, far more true than uh, it's comforting to think. But uh, but in this case, those kind of publications might get taken down for corruption. They might get taken down for financial crimes because they are, you know, criminal institutions. (laughs) So uh, so it's kind of like. Maybe a off-the-cuff comparison would be to say, what if you knew someone who stole cars? They stole cars, they ran a chop shop, and uh, in addition to running a chop shop, they also believed that Earth was flat. Those were their two things, stealing cars and telling people Earth was flat. And then one day, they get arrested because they got caught stealing cars and they, their chop shop was found. They had, you know, they were scraping VIN numbers. They were breaking things down for the catalytic converters, other components. You know how the game goes, I assume. And then their friends started saying, well, 
okay, he wasn't the perfect guy, but he got arrested. Why do you think that was? Is it because he knew the truth about Flat Earth? Yeah, and he had the audacity to tell others about it. Yeah, he's speaking truth to power in between stealing Honda Civics. You know what I mean? Like, that's... Don't that's steal a very, Honda Civics. They're one of the most common cars <laughs> I know, to be stolen. Just, just don't. Just don't. <laughs> steal better cars. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I've seen so many Maseratis that are just just begging to be stolen. No, I'm just joking. Just that's ripe, awful. Uh, ripe like a steal. plum. No, don't steal a Maserati. That's an impractical car to steal. <laughs> it is true. It's impractical. I mean, they stick out. Anyway, so what we're saying is there are bad actors in the world of uh, academic journalism, right? And these are the known bad actors. And sometimes people make a Faustian bargain just to get published in something that is like a pay-to-play institution, but there is another conspiracy afoot, uh, some would argue. There's definitely corruption afoot, and it doesn't just affect people who make that Faustian bargain. It doesn't just affect criminal enterprises. It doesn't just it, like it affects you, honestly. Even if you have never written or submitted a paper to an academic journal, even if you've never read a paper in an academic journal, even if you don't care what these things are, it affects you specifically in a way that will probably make you angry, and it should. Uh, let's talk about the typical publishers, because Matt, as we know, the legit publishers aren't always paragons of ethics either, uh, and they are insanely profitable. Let's maybe follow the money, right? Like uh, you, you and I and, and, and Paul, Mission Control, we were talking about this off air. Uh, and one of the things that Paul and I have done pretty often in the past, I've done it for this show, is when you find a paywalled article, which can, you know, stymie our own research, you find the author who wrote it, get a contact for them if you can, and then ask them directly if they can just send you their paper. And more than nine times out of 10, in my experience, they're super down to do it. Why is that? So first, let's talk about the individual person who's doing research to, you know, hopefully write it all up and submit it to a publisher, right? Uh, are they getting paid for that article when they submit it? Like, do they get a little stipend or something or, you know, some kind of small payment one time for submitting an article? No, 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 no. They do that for free. And they are hoping, right, that they are going to get accepted to be published within that journal, and that's really all the, that's, that's the whole transaction. You do all the research, all the work, you send it off and just pray that somebody somewhere is going to accept it. Then we talked about the peer review process, which is mostly an unpaid position by a peer who has similar education and understanding within a field. And uh, those people are often doing that pro bono for whatever journal is as asking for them to do it or as for looking for them to do it, right? So that's kind of weird. There's no there's no revenue right now in this stream. Mm, not yet. No. Exactly. Uh, so. Right now it's all it's all free work being done for the journal essentially. Right. And it's a lot of free work because there are often multiple authors for any given paper. 
And that's, that's another little chestnut we'll get to in a second. Uh, here's where the money comes in. In the United States, this research can often be funded by the government at a federal level of some sort, meaning taxpayer dollars, meaning your dollars, if you have ever paid taxes, pay to create it. The publishers then are getting all this stuff for free. They are paying some editors to check grammar, maybe to give a first a first pass, not a deep one, just a first pass to say, okay, this paper seems legit. You know, it doesn't take the world's number one endocrinologist to read the first paragraph of something and see the line, Elvis Presley invented endocrinology and then say, nope, this isn't it. Uh, so so they, there are people, they do have staff, they are paid. These editors are also the um, kind of function as the gatekeepers to that peer review process. So they decide whether a paper seems at face legit, but the bulk of the editorial work is done by those peer reviewers, again, on an often uh, volunteer basis, and they are checking the actual validity of the experiments. They're going into the trenches on methodology, and these are scientists themselves. They're working scientists. They're taking time out of their day to do this work. And then the publisher sells this journal, their product, back to the same government-funded institutions or university libraries to be read by the scientists who collectively, let's face it, pretty much created the content in the first place. Now, you know I rightly loathe the word content because it, it's soulless, right? Just saying the word content implies that uh, a beautiful poem is the same thing as a list of um, average rainfall year over year in southwestern Utah, right? It's the, These things are not the same. But in this case, uh, I think the word content fits because we are talking about a process that continues across journals in any imaginary, any academic field you can imagine from uh, macroeconomics all the way to, you know, very specific niches of forensic psychology or pathology, et cetera. So the publisher is making money selling this back to the people who created it. That's what's happening. For critics of the status quo, this feels like a grift. And if you were paying taxes for this, naturally, you have to ask, well, why don't I get to read it if I paid for it? What's, what gives? I'm paying for it. I'm basically paying membership dues for a club that won't allow me in. And I can pay again in the form of article access or in the form of a subscription. And this just does this doesn't just apply to civilians, non-academics. Academics have to do this too. I, I, academics have to pay for like the work of their own colleagues uh, and even like, I don't know, it's baffling. We got it. You don't have to take our word for it. We we pulled an example that I think puts it in pretty damning in a pretty damning perspective. Oh yeah, uh, over this place called the American Council on Science and Health. There's a doctor over there uh, named Doctor Chuck uh, Dinerstein. Dinerstein. Sorry, I apologize. I've only read your name, uh, Doctor Chuck, but. 
he notes that the professional organizations, the associations of which many of these researchers and scientists are a part, also get fleeced here. And it's uh, it's crazy. We, we mentioned it kind of at the top. When you're a member, you pay dues, right? So then uh, the membership as part of those dues gives you access to some of these journals. Um, but this is how this is a quote from Dr. Chuck. I'm just going to call you Dr. Chuck. Chuck quote, D. <laughs> Chuck D. There you go. <laughs> uh, quote, we pay for the privilege of keeping up with our profession and providing a subscription audience to see. This is important. Providing a subscription audience to the publications that they use to attract advertisements. Oh, that's that's interesting. Oh, yeah, that's another part. Right. And he continues. We are not the only ones that pay. In fact, my contribution is minuscule compared to the millions of dollars that colleges and universities pay for journal packages for their libraries. And this, Ben, for my money, for my tax dollars, this is where the real conspiracy is. These packages that journals get institutions to pay for. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he also adds, the journals have taken a page out of Hollywood's monopolistic star system of the 30s and 40s, where they require you to take some journals of lesser interest if you want the blockbusters. So if you want access, you know, to the number one journal, then that means you have to take access to, you have to also bundle this just like cable packaging would be a more recent example cable channel packaging you have to get this other stuff as well and that's kind of weird right whether you consider yourself a skeptic uh or you consider yourself uh, a full-on i i don't know tinfoil hat wingnut i don't think most people consider themselves uh that but whether or not regardless of where you find yourself on that spectrum the truth is there. If you pay taxes, you're part of funding this research. But if you want to read the research, aka get what you paid for, you have to pay for it again somehow, uh, either as part of the tuition, if you are a student, dues, if you're part of a professional association, as Dr. Dr. Chuck D puts it, or a la carte per article. And this is something that interested me. I think a lot of people unfamiliar with this controversy aren't aware of this. In 2019, the uh, former Trump administration considered a proposal that would require all published research with federal funding to be immediately available to the public. Journals pushed back. They wrote a letter to the administration which is available now. And they said, look, there has to be a 12-month embargo, a year-long exclusivity period. Basically, the stuff that you paid for or the stuff your colleagues researched should be behind a paywall for a year. And they, they, their arguments for this, I don't know. I want to see what you think, Matt. They said open access would, quote, nationalize the valuable American intellectual property that we produce and force us to give it away to the rest of the world for free. Interesting use of we there. Do we produce it, journals? Do we really? Well, I mean, that is weird. Do they consider it IP? Like, do journals consider each individual article their own intellectual property when they publish it? They say that the articles are the property of the journals that own the copyright 
not of the authors, <sighs> not of the funding agencies, and not the taxpayers who paid for it in the first place. So wait, wait a second. Yeah. So yeah. So we published it. Are, it's ours. <laughs> yeah. But, the journals are getting the research for free, the article. They're not paying people to peer review it. Then they're publishing it. So they don't have to pay for a dang thing. But then they're charging for like the they, they're still arguing that they need a year's time to monetize that thing that they now own the copyright because they put it into a PDF form. Yeah, look. They're making a killing. Uh, the largest of these publishing groups makes about a 36% profit margin every year as of 2019. And that is a margin that many other industries will literally murder someone for. <laughs> so it's no surprise that they search for, you know, good rationalizations in their perspective to keep making this hand over fist money at multiple at multiple levels and you know the question is how how could this process be improved you know another question i would posit is um is this current model is it actually helping spread scientific innovation or is it stymieing that innovation Right. Mm. There are a lot of there are a lot of poor scientists, you know, brilliant people who would depend upon an institution, maybe a cash strapped institution to get access to the current research. If you are a working scientist and you are working a year behind, you are in trouble. You know what I mean? So this this seems like a um, it seems like a bad faith argument. I'm willing to be wrong about it, but it's hard to look at those kind of profit margins and then look at that letter to the administration and think that they're sincerely arguing for a greater good, you know, unless that greater good is Q4 profits. Thank you for that depressing sentiment, Ben, because <laughs> I think you're right. Uh <laughs> What do you what do you say? Because there's one last thing we need to get into, or actually there are two, like two last things we need to get into before we finish this story. It, let's go ahead and take a break right now. And we'll come right back and we'll just dig more into the corruption. Here we go. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. 
They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. At UC San Diego, we understand that in order to turn the vast unknown into new cures or human connections or expansive culture, you have to be willing to venture further out. That's why we'll go as far as the International Space Station with cancer cells in hand and novel medicines in mind. That's why we map the seemingly randomness of forest fires and connect them with revolutionary AI to see where they'll appear next. And it's why we arrive on the San Diego shore from all over the world to bring different perspectives to our world's biggest challenges. When you push the boundaries of science, art, and culture, whole worlds open up. And at UC San Diego, that's where the real adventure starts. Learn more at ucsd.edu. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. And we're back to paraphrase Alice in Wonderland, corrupter and corrupter. So multiple academics and researchers find themselves in a strange situation when it comes to publishing. They submit a paper for evaluation, and then one or more of the peer reviewers responds saying, this paper's okay, but you can't publish it yet because you didn't cite the following preceding papers. They are vital to this work. They are vital to this conversation. Your paper cannot be published without them. And the kicker, the uh, Christopher Guest, M. Night Shyamalan, plot wrinkle of all this, sometimes, folks, those needed citations are papers written by the same person who said you have to put them in your work? Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> I'm just giving you a quick story. I, I experienced that, that exact thing. What? Uh, we, we, made, we, we made a show called Unobscured that looked uh-huh. at the Salem Witch Trials. I remember and that. And we, we used a ton of books as our research one of them was i'm not even going to say the name of the book it was written by an author uh that found a lot of success with a book she wrote about the same witch trials and we spoke to a ton of people in the academic sphere who have who have researched this this period of history specifically you know in, in the um massachusetts area and the history of the witch trials themselves and to a person almost in the academic sphere, they did not like the work of this popular author. And it was often because she didn't specifically cite these other academic researchers in her work. Um, it was almost like they were saying, oh yeah, well she's, 
she's standing on the backs of giants, but she didn't even think to mention the giants upon which she stands, which is, you know, sometimes a, a, a real critique, but often it was, it was brought with such anger, I think, and resentment from the academic sphere. Uh, because I guess because of that, you didn't you didn't cite the right papers, basically. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah, I mean it's a big deal. People want to be credited, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not surprised you ran into that. Uh, it's it's also important to say this isn't necessarily always sinister or corrupt. There are very ethical professionals and working scientists and scholars who are right when they say, look, you need to cite this thing. Um, I did it often. Mm -hmm. I am one of the many authors who contributed work to this earlier, this earlier research. Um, But, but it is inescapable. We must admit that because of the way the system works, every time these peers get their papers cited, it ups their own recognition. It ups their own street cred. They're therefore incentivized, right? And that is inescapable. That is simply true. It's almost like, I was trying to think of an analogy for this, man. It's almost like, imagine you and, and me and Paul are in a band and we are in talks with a record label. And we're like 98% of the way there. The album's about to come out. And then this executive, whose job is just to green light stuff, comes in and says, okay, we can make your album, but I need to be in all of the songwriting credits. You need to just put my name there. You know, I'm Dave Davidson, and I need songwriting credit, um, or the deal's not happening, because otherwise it won't be a credible album. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, Dave Davidson well, does do? bring a lot of credibility. That's still one of my favorite names. I use that in sketch comedy. I got to send that one to you. It's good. But this is a potentially dangerous feedback loop. And and I have to ask you, um, Matt, for your, for your experience, um, when you were involved with that, with Unobscured, what, what was your vibe? Did you feel like these people were acting in good faith? I mean, they're, they're not wrong, right? Uh, there were concepts that were first published in, say, an academic journal uh, by a specific person that were then used to develop the story for that popular author. Um, and that author didn't, you know, made no recognition of the previous work. But I thoroughly enjoyed reading the popular author's book, and I got a little bored reading some of the other more academic books. Uh, so I don't know. There's this weird thing where it's like, it would have been nice if the, those citations were made, right? It would have been very nice and probably the right thing to do. Uh, but in the end, the result is I, I enjoyed reading the one where somebody put a bunch of these ideas together without citing those, uh, authors. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of a, a bridge, I guess, Right. Or uh, there's some kind of chasm to cross sometimes. But Mm -hmm. so let's talk about this feedback loop again. These peer reviewers are volunteers often. Do they have a horse in the race? Yes. That's not necessarily their fault. They didn't create this system. But when they publish, it can help their reputation and their career. 
when their previous work is cited, it also ups their reputation and their career. So they are incentivized again. And if they are being unethical, then it's possible that they could uh, just go all gas, no brakes to get their work cited as often as possible. And it might sound brazen, but can you blame them? Uh, and uh, again, you know, this is, I, I hope that it's clear that we're pointing out in that case, we're pointing out bad apple situations, right? Yeah. I like, I, I like to think personally that um, the majority of peer reviewers, when they're saying these are articles that you should cite, they're talking purely about the legitimacy of the preceding research, right? Like yeah. they're saying, yeah. you know, not me, but. You need to cite, like, I'm not Dave Davidson, but you need to cite Dave Davidson's work on the evolving printing aspects of tarot cards in the 17th century, because that is clearly uh, what your uh, analysis of, you know, the printing press in the 19th century is based on. Whatever. I'm making up these examples. But the other part, if we stay with Dr. Dinerstein's comparison to Hollywood, which I quite like, is uh, the the idea of celebrity scientists. And we're not talking about Neil deGrasse Tyson here. We're not talking about um, who is a scientist. We're not talking about science popularizers, right? We're talking about people that you may not have heard of if you are not in the field of ophthalmology. But if you are an ophthalmologist, you have almost certainly heard their name. Oh, yeah. You, you think about it this way. If you were... Somebody, I don't know, like Paul Mission Control Deccan, and uh, you are a filmmaker and you aspire for even more filmmaking in your future. Uh, every time your name pops up somewhere in the credits, that's legitimacy. So if you want to have somebody like an A-list actor, let's say Bradley Cooper, to be in your next work, um, you have to gain enough credibility to have Brad say, oh, yeah, I want to be in Mission Control's next thing. And if you get somebody like Bradley in your film, a lot more people are going to watch your film. And if a lot more people watch your film and know your name, they're going to watch the next thing. Or it's going to at least increase your chances that you get the next one made, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And this happens in academia as well. That That's why a lot of independent filmmakers really want to get known names. That's why if you become what's called a breakout star, it's much easier for you to get roles as an actor, even if you're not the perfect individual to play that role. Uh, many scholars, as a result, end up collaborating with an established, famous in their field scientist who seems to, on paper, publish stuff all the time because their name is one of the several that's on like 50 or 60 papers a year. And again, this is shout out to uh, uh, Dr. Andrew Stapleton for talking about this. Uh, check out his video because he's, again, he just, he got to me, man. He's charming. He's charming yeah. in the way he presents it and he's correct. So he said that there will be a lot of these superstar scholars who seem like they publish or collaborate on a ton of papers, but they're kind of functioning. And this is my words here, so I don't mean to paraphrase you, Dr. Stapleton, but uh, they're kind of functioning as somewhere between a brand name and at best kind of a first pass editor. And they are incentivized to do this because every time they do it, it doesn't just help the up and coming person publishing 
but it helps them keep their name at a high level of visibility. It creates a feedback loop. So this isn't to say people should stop conducting research and stop sharing it. Instead, it's important to be realistic and transparent about the problems in this industry. And there are a lot of problems in this industry. Corruption and conspiracy, they're have been reported by multitudes of credible scholars and scientists across multiple fields of study. Initiatives like that push for open access continue today, as does uh, another related movement to make these journals fully digital. But let's be honest, with all the other problems besetting current civilizations, some of which are existential, this one doesn't often get reported to the public at large. No, not at all. I want to make one more citation here, Ben. It's a charming video made by a fellow named Zachary Foster. It's called The Academic Publishing Industry is Dying. You you found this video, Ben. And oh, that's right, yeah. It's It just makes a great point. And again, charming fellow, Zach. Nice work. Um, it makes a point that these subscription models that we mentioned at the top here that academic institutions pay to have access to these academic journals are often exorbitant, like millions of dollars a year to give every student in your, you know, at like, let's say at the university of California, you'd pay one and a half million dollars up to $5 million a year to have all your, give all your students access to certain academic journals through a publisher. And they just realized this is kind of crazy. This is way too much money for this. Now that there's an a la carte system that we also mentioned, why don't we just get rid of that subscription that we pay for? And anytime a student or a professor needs access to an article, they will just get access and we'll pay for it at that point, right? The point of sale. Um, and they saved, according to Zach in the research, there's stuff out of Berkeley News that he's citing. Uh, they saved 97% of the academic journal costs by going that route rather than just paying a bulk subscription cost. I'm really glad you mentioned this one because I I felt like I knew this was going to go long and I felt like we didn't have time to dive into that. Like the question of whether it's dying is, is a related question. Um, But yeah, a hundred percent agree. And I I looked into some of the stuff that, um, that is being referenced there and it's legit. It's these again, these are very, very intelligent people and they are not making this stuff up. These like the nepotism, the corruption, uh, the the backdoor deals, the money changing hands. It's all true. And it just uh, gets kind of ignored by by the public at large to the detriment, not to be hyperbolic, but to the detriment of scientific progress. So with that, with that in mind, um, you know, I'm sure we had a lot of our fellow conspiracy realists with us today listening and getting getting a few uh, like hell yes or amens or shaking fist in solidarity. Uh, if this is you, then best of luck uh, in your academic career. Uh, you are doing important work and we have your backs. We also want to know what you think, uh, whether or not you're in the academy. Have you had any personal run-ins with the strange events we've outlined above? If so, what do you think could improve these situations? I love when we get to do this, where we get to say, here are the problems. Here's the stuff they don't want you to know. This is the, these are the facts. This is the crazy stuff, factual or not. Fix it for us. 
Uh, so if you happen to have the answer, if you have if you have figured out how to solve this, uh, please do contact us. We try to be easy to find online. That's right. Uh, tell us all your ways to validate and verify scientific research without having to use this model. You can reach us on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. We are at Conspiracy Stuff. On Instagram, we are at Conspiracy Stuff Show. We also have a phone number you can call. It is 1-833-STDWYTK. When you call in, you've got three minutes to leave a message. Please give yourself a cool nickname. Let us know if we can use your voice and message on the air. If not, that's totally fine. Again, just let us know. If you've got more to say than can fit in that three-minute voicemail message, why not instead send us a good old-fashioned email? We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep.